politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, scorned and forgotten taxpayers and all around good patriotic Americans who are expendable to the political class, but indispensable to me here at CR Podcast, Blaze TV. It is Thursday. And it is December 10th, and it is time for us to take an account of where we've been the last eight months. I want to give a broad overview with a special guest today about the trends of the virus, what it does and doesn't do, and what does and doesn't work, which certainly is nothing that our government has been doing. And I want to ask the question of where is the end game? What is the end point to all of this? This is the most serious question of our lifetime. We are in grave danger of being sucked into the vortex of immutable tyranny. And there is no end game because we are stupid to go along with this garbage. That's the reality. It's our fault. Where I want to know right now where that end point is. Okay, it's you might say, well, you know, eventually everyone's going to get it. Yes and no. Because the reality is. That this virus likely the way it's behaving, it's becoming like a flu. And in fact, the flu has been abolished to such a point that CDC mathematically can't even make projections with their surveillance program because they don't have enough of a mathematical sample there's no flu this is basically the flu it will become an endemic see they're trying to treat it like this the worst pandemic ever but but the irony is if they were correct then it would have been over already the fact is it will become endemic like a flu because it's really not deadly to overwhelmingly most people except for those that are really slated to die That's why the death rate is on par with life expectancy, depending on the country. That's why for women, the death, the median death age of COVID is higher because it tracks with their life expectancy. It's always going to be somewhat endemic. Remember, H1N1 started with the Spanish flu in 1918. Everyone knows H1N1 from 2010, 2009. But that, that strain of flu has been around for 100 years. It's still around today. The vaccine, they have already said, every major public official, politician, that the mask Nazism, the control, the social control, the psychological control, the abuse at the hands of government will not end. That has become very clear. They say it blatantly. It's not even like I have to warn you, like, you know, the vaccine's not the end game. They're saying the vaccine's not the end point. It will never end. And you know what? Once they socially condition people with such ease, I mean, there's no pushback. People will just want to live that way anyway. They'll forget what it's like to be a human being created in the image of God with a nose and a mouth that's not covered like you're some rattlesnake or something that needs to be locked up and caged. That's the thing. And of course, there's always lurking viruses that we never hear of that are dealt with in medical settings that will suddenly become the new rage. And the existing baseline of tyranny will be the starting point For the growth of the next tyranny. That's the question. Where does this end? The reason why we know this is never going to end. Is because it's not about COVID. It was never about saving lives. It wasn't about hospitalizations. Because we're being lied to on all fronts. It's about the political outcomes that they always wanted. But they found the issue to be used as a pretext. Because here's the deal. Nothing adds up. In Baltimore, they just announced indoor dining and outdoor dining is over with. You can't do it. But they have known outdoor drug markets 
that are not only not cracked down upon, but they've only almost become a protected political class with a prosecutor who's really a fox guarding the hen house, Marilyn Mosby here. She has made it clear she will punish police for going after drug trafficking. That's like that's like the highest order of man. And meanwhile, she is literally appointing a public defender to find ways to use COVID to release murderers and rapists. People who are over 60 serving life sentences. It's pretty hard in this town to serve a life sentence. That's These are the worst of the worst of the worst. What I'm trying to say is, I had a debate with a friend yesterday. You know, he thought that genuinely the left is just very scared of the virus. You know, they're they're wrong, but they're they're genuinely just scared of it, and that's how they lost control. And I was like, no, because you look at everything. L- look at this story. Do you know how? W- what's the worst thing you can do? L- l- let's say you are really scared of COVID. You're genuinely scared, and you're willing to suspend liberties to do it, but it's really all for COVID. The suspension of liberty is not the end. It's the means to the end of, in your mind, treating and dealing with COVID. Let's say I'm wrong. Well, what would make sense is this. What's the most transmissible, spreading form of anything to do is open borders, right? Yet we have caravans lined up to come into America. Biden is announcing he's going to allow them in. You have mass caravans from Latin America converging on our border. Why are you worried about COVID? Let me bring up something interesting. Naila Rush, she covers refugee issues for Center for Immigration Studies. She has a piece out today noting that refugees are not being tested for COVID prior to resettlement. You're getting them from all corners of the world. They're not being tested for COVID virus before entry. This is recently confirmed to me by a State Department spokesperson. Refugee, quote, refugees are subject to the same COVID-19 entry requirements as other foreign national travelers to the United States, and they undergo required pre-departure screening set forth by the overseas airport and airlines. But what, but what is that? That's a fever check and a series of health questions. Now, as you well know, at this point, probably well under 50% of people who have COVID have fever. It's not really a predominant symptom. And um, basically, the spokesperson, spokesperson said, health protocols governing U.S. refugee resettlement are developed and overseen by CDC. CDC does not currently recommend routine pre-departure COVID-19 testing for refugees. Right there in black and white. Isn't it funny how we're only concerned about COVID in certain ways? Well, it's the same reason why if you really were concerned about COVID, why would you double and triple and quadruple down on failure that failed by your own admission for eight months? If you're so concerned that COVID is so dangerous, why wouldn't you join the chorus of grassroots doctors? And why wouldn't all the CDC and NIH and FDA and and all the politicians and all these pseudo-epidemiologists in the media... Why wouldn't they shout from the rooftops the prophylactics? Not just hydroxychloroquine, but, you know, um, obviously the mix of vitamin D and zinc and vitamin C. Even aspirin, all this stuff at the first sign of symptoms, some of it you should take even preemptively. If you're really that concerned about COVID... There's a wealth of undisputed, one-sided research on this stuff. And yet, no, very few people know about this. You can't even find the information. I have friends and relatives that are getting the virus, and they're like, ask me, hey, what do I do? And it's so sad that eight months into the most studied, most obsessed about virus ever, we've dumped billions upon billions of dollars into it. And people are still unaware of basic things that are working. If you're such a COVID hawk, 
Wouldn't you be obsessed about this stuff and push it? You know, there, there's, there's other drugs. There's, drug, there's the whole crony capitalism stuff. They're pushing remdesivir, which doesn't work. WHO said it doesn't work. And yet they won't push things that are known to work. Known to work. Ivermectin. Ivermectin. There was a doctor, um, Pierre Corey. He is associate professor of medicine at St. Luke's Aurora Medical Center. He testified before the Senate Homeland Security Committee, I believe yesterday. And he was like, it's a cheap drug. And he said, it works. And his point was, why are we flooding the hospital? We're basically telling anyone who has flu-like symptoms to just run to the hospital, get on remdesivir, which doesn't even work, so we could juice up the hospital numbers, so we could lock you down. His point was, and believe me, he was very passionate about COVID and how he sees people dying. I mean, he wasn't dismissing it at all, just the opposite. He was like feeling that COVID's a big problem. But his point was, why aren't we giving people the known tools where there's great research on it working, this this drug? Again, I mean, when, when you spend billions of dollars and dump money into a drug like we haven't done, we tend to have pretty good outcomes from them. We tend to discover things. They're not necessarily a cure, but, you know, they really do mitigate the symptoms and speed up the recovery. And his point is, why aren't we treating this outpatient? I mean, except for very innovative doctors that are out of the box, that are like us politically, just your typical doctor, they just follow, they just drink out of the same trough. And it's like, yeah, I got nothing for you. Shut up, wear a mask and don't get the virus. But I mean, with likely 100 million people having already gotten it in the country, 30% of the country, I mean... That, that that's that's stupid. I mean, a, again, if you genuinely care about COVID, you have to tell people you're going to assume you're going to get it, no matter what we do, because we've done everything already. But here here is the best thing you can do preemptively to boost your immune system. Here's what you should watch for in the initial signs. If you're starting to really get you know certain degree of like severe flu symptoms, doctors should have a protocol of how to deal with that. And the best drugs available, but it's all politicized because, folks, treating COVID is not the end. It's the means to the tyranny. This is really where it's all at, and this is why it will never end. We're, we're all like looking at it medically. Oh, they'll have a vaccine. They'll do this. They'll do that. And then we can go back to normal. I don't even hear people asking to go back to normal. You know, it's funny, even in these lawsuits, to go back to normal is, oh, I should have the same capacity limits. Please, I want to open my business. I'll I'll do 25% capacity and wear a mask. That's not normal. This is what we strive for? Oh, let our kids go back to school and abuse to not be able to play with each other and wear a mask for seven hours. What's wrong with you? All of you. It's our fault. The tyranny can only persist because we empower it. We do it. We follow it. We're all into it. If you think this will end on its own, you're missing the point. This is not some sort of disagreement over like, oh, I'm really concerned about COVID. I'm super concerned. I have this degree of benchmark before you can live normally. And the reason is because it has nothing to do with the lockdowns, like we're going to discuss with our guest, Yunon and Weiss. Because it clearly didn't help. They were doing this stuff at 30, 50 cases per million. And months upon months into doing this stuff, they're at five, 600 cases per million in, in, in a given, uh, per, per 100,000, I'm sorry, per 100,000 in a given place. It's the same story everywhere. Go to rationalground.com. We had Ian Miller on He's the mask chart man. He actually put together a list of 17 charts showing this. But we're the expendables. You could lie about us. You could cheat us. Regular Americans that don't want a handout. They don't want special favors. 
They don't want to be divided up into balkanized groups. All they want is just to live freely, live safely. We are expendable. We have an elite that is bought out by Russia, by, by China, I mean. I'm going to have an article out today on the whole Swalwell, Christine Fang scandal. That's just a drop in the bucket with the Chinese espionage. There's a story out of Canada where Trudeau allowed the Chinese military to engage in winter military exercises and training on, in, on Canadian soil. This is endemic of all countries in the West. We are completely sold out. Our institutions are rotten to the core. The Hunter Biden scandal. Suddenly, it's okay for the FBI to indict him, of course, after the election. Because had this happened a few weeks before, it would have swayed the election. And of course, the courts, as we talked about yesterday, suddenly everyone from right to left, Andy McCarthy on the right, everyone left. Are you kidding me? What do you think judges are? Politicians, they could just determine a presidential election. They're literally saying this while judges are giving citizen rights to illegal aliens. What Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers that a president can't do, whereas a king can make denizens of aliens. A president can confer privileges, no privileges whatsoever. And now they're saying even a judge can. Suddenly, they find one example of where they don't want courts to get involved, when, mind you, we have election laws being violated as a result of a cascading momentum and effect of years' worth of lower federal courts that indeed did get involved at every turn, and suddenly, when we need the Supreme Court to police their stupid lower courts, oh, well, uh, you know, it's not our job to get involved. Everything, as I noted yesterday, is a one-way street and a dead end. And the consequences are devastating. Just going back to the COVID stuff. The suicide stuff. The father of the boy in my county who committed suicide. I wrote about him a couple weeks ago. The father randomly contacted me and uh, thanked me for the piece and said, you know, there was an hour-long interview he did with the local Fox affiliate and they barely captured the essence of it. So many lies are being told. We're expendable. And, and again, the Republicans are just as bad. Let me give you a tale of two governors. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, Democrat governor. He is married to his mask. He's obsessed with masks. He bows down and worships the mask. He tested positive for the virus. How did he get it? He must have been doing something wrong, right? Now, we could laugh out of these governors, but then you go down to Alabama. Rhino K. Ivy, rhino piece of garbage, dirtbag, she extended the mask order into 2021, which of course means in perpetuity. I am sorry, but if you are in Alabama and you are following this, you are the problem. We laugh out of blue states. Show me a red state that's, that's much better. This is where we are. Meanwhile, New York City on the verge of hitting a 14-year high in shootings. We are the expendables. The Restaurant Association sent out a letter and they noted As of today, 17% of restaurants, more than 110,000 establishments are closed permanently. The vast majority were well-managed, fixtures in their communities. On average, these restaurants had been in business for 16 years. 16% have been open for more than 30 years. Only 48% of these former restaurant owners say it is likely they will remain in the industry in the months ahead. And folks, it's not going to be the McDonald's and the Burger Kings and you know the big chains. They always, they're in with the system. They pay their tax. They support refugee resettlement. And they support COVID. And they support Bill Gates. And they support China. And they support criminals. And the homosexual agenda. And everything that is good and just. So they, they'll be in on it. 
They'll get their bailout money, which the Republicans are already joining in with. Small businesses crushed. It's funny, they always talk about the little guy. Meaning they complain about asymmetry between the top and the bottom at an income level, and they want to use that as an impetus for government control to redistribute wealth. But somehow it's okay to directly use the boot of government to hold down the little guy. Because in their parlance, a handout is a tax, and a tax is a handout. We live in a world upside down where every institution is corrupt. They censor everything we put out. Any truth that gets out within hours is censored. We're going to talk about that a little bit with our guest. So where are we? Where is the endpoint? And the answer is there is no endpoint. The endpoint is that the tyranny gets worse and worse in perpetuity indefinitely until and unless we rise up. That is the simple reality. Now, but to put a finer point on this thesis today, that this will never end, there is no endpoint unless you, we, the people, put an end to it. I have with us a special guest that I've really been meaning to have for seven months. Um, Yinon Weiss has been at the forefront of rational thought, really thoughtful, incisive data analysis charts on Twitter. You got to stop right now and follow him on Twitter. Yinon Weiss, that's Y-I-N-O-N-W. So it's at Y-I-N-O-N-W. It is one of your most important Twitter follows. He doesn't tweet every second like like a lot of us do, but every tweet packs a punch. He's a 13-year veteran of the Marine Corps. Uh, He was also in Army Special Forces. He holds a degree in bioengineering from UC Berkeley, as well as an MBA from Harvard Business School. He's a tech entrepreneur. And I think why that's important, as we've talked about with some previous guests, is uh, we hear from the media, the, the public health experts, that we need a doctor, a doctor, or, or you know, a certain type of scientist, epidemiologist. And as we noted, this is really an issue of data analysis. Someone who's good at data analysis and also sizing up a broad picture of observations as someone who was in army special forces certainly has to do. And these guys seem to get it right. Whereas a lot of these other guys, God bless you. You might be treating patients all day, but if you are not paying attention to what is going on and you just make assumptions, I think this place did a good job because I'm, um, they did lockdowns and, and they, they don't have many cases. Well, until they do. And Yanan has done all this sort of work and he's written some great columns at Real Clear Politics. He has a great one on has like a bunch of charts on masks and the trend lines we see with their efficacy or lack thereof at the Federalist. You could see some of his writings and of course on Twitter. Yanan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Yeah, I've been chomping at the bit to get you on the show. And then I wake up early in the morning. And your tweets are, are always the type of things I wait for because, you know, I really wish you would write more often and we'd be able to see your your full thoughts on a full, you know, full p- paper. But you somehow managed to pack a punch in those tweets and you have a thread really showing some of the latest trends by state, by states that, based on everything we've been told, have been doing the right thing and being careful and doing everything, and it just seems like the virus does what it does wherever it is. What are some of those observations? Yeah, looking at recent trends or really even macro trends over the last few weeks and months and the whole year, right? We see seasonality is, is driving a lot of the cases and deaths. And so in my recent analysis, I compared uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, sort of like a New England area, and I compared them to California. Three uh, very uh, left-leaning states that have been touting following the science. Um, some of them have curfews. They all obviously have a very strict mask mandate. Uh, Massachusetts put in a mandate a month ago that said you have to wear a mask outdoors no matter where you are, no matter what kind of social distancing, right? So picture somebody camping by themselves, miles away from people. Technically, they're supposed to be wearing a mask. 
in Massachusetts, uh, curfews. People can't go out after 10 o'clock. Um, so these are states that are putting in very strong restrictions. And they all their graphs on cases, for example, look almost identical, um, which is incredible because they're 2,500 miles apart and their cases are skyrocketing. Connecticut now has, uh, at this point this week, had the highest per capita caseload in this country. Uh, but they say they're following the science. All these um, states are following the science. And so they blame the people for saying that, oh, the people are not following our rules well enough. The people are, are violating these things. But how can it be that in California, 2,500 miles away from Massachusetts and Connecticut, all these people, all the exact same time, across different state boundaries, all started to violate what the medical teams have been telling them this whole time. That seems unlikely. Uh, a much more likely scenario is that I also added graphs of Florida. Now, Florida ended nearly all COVID restrictions in late September, right? So schools are open, businesses are open, uh, masks are not required uh, at a state level. Uh, they ended that in September. And their cases are doing better than Connecticut, Massachusetts, and California, and many other, many other states uh, in terms of case numbers. In other words, we can also dive into deeply how important are case numbers in general, what do they sure. mean, and the cycle threshold and things like that. Right? But it is, what is very clear, I mean, what is apparent to anybody with any common sense, and this is where I think non-experts have an advantage because they're not blinded by yes. their academic groupthink. They can look at what is a clearly common sense, like, these rules, these mask mandates are not working. The, 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 the business lockdowns are not working. And like fundamentally, this is because this is an aerosol-based transmission virus. So what I mean by that is this is not, this is primarily, we've known this for a while, it's primarily transmitted to aerosol. And this is important to understand. Uh, this is not droplets, right? So like droplets are like, I sneeze on you or you know, I, I, I talk and I spit and these droplets fall on your, on your face or on the desk. And that's how you get it. That's droplets. That's where masks and distancing can make a difference because it's a physical direct line, a site movement of the virus in a droplet. Aerosol means it's in the air. It's, it's aer aerosolized. Uh, it's like you spray, like you go into a room and you spray, uh, you know, like a, a, a good scent, you know, to make the room smell fresher. It doesn't only smell fresher within three feet of you, right? The whole room does, right? Or for similarly, if you have a stinky sock in the corner of the room, it doesn't have a six foot boundary around it. <laughs> the whole room is going to get that smell. And that's how this virus is transmitted. That's aerosol. And so if two people are in the same room, you're breathing the same air. And it doesn't matter if you have a mask on or not, you're breathing the same air. The virus is in the air. Uh, wearing a mask doesn't help. Being six feet apart doesn't help. And so as long as people are going to the grocery store, as long as people are, are living and interacting with other human beings, this virus is going to uh, spread in a very similar way. And that's why I don't think any of these lockdowns, because people still go to the grocery store. People uh, still have basic essential needs. And so these lockdowns are not making a difference. I would also argue they're not necessary. Even if they made a difference, I think this is a you know this is an over a gross overreaction. Sure, uh, and then, and then obviously the, the violation of the rights, and obviously the collateral damage is is shocking and enormous, and that's covered up um, because that we know is caused by the lockdowns, the social isolation, the suicides, the drug overdoses, the missed physical care, um, the atrophy of seniors, and all that stuff. But it's like it, it is remarkable how mechanical this virus seems to be that it seems like there's geographic trends that there are certain areas it's time for it to spread only in those areas. Then right. there's times when like late, you know, like fall, November, we all knew that historically that is the time. So everywhere is getting it, albeit the places that, you know, like initially when it started earlier in the fall, Wisconsin, and then the Great Plains and Wyoming, these were states that had had virgin ground. It was completely unplowed, very few cases until now, lower population density took longer to get there. But once it does get there, well, it's a seesaw. Fewer people already had it, so it's going to spread pretty quickly, whereas in the in the Northeast, it... um. 
you know, a lot of people already had it, but then recently it's back up in the Northeast. So we already, I mean, for anyone who wants to open their eyes, it's clear this stuff doesn't work. The virus is going to virus. It does what it does. But if we're just kind of like sleuthing around and trying to learn the virus itself and understand, well, what are its patterns? Not that we can do anything to stop it. So what's your takeaway, your your big takeaway looking at the geography? Let's just talk about America for now. From March on, and I know this is a very open-ended, but take as much time as you need. How do, how do you see, where do you see it playing out? What do you think is is what has driven it primarily based on geography and timing um, and possibly where you see this going in the future? Yeah, so let me take a step back and just talk about what is our strategy and our objective, right? This is anybody with any military background would, would appreciate that you cannot be successful in your campaign, whatever it is, if you don't first clearly communicate your objective and then your strategy. And I think the problem we have right now is there's a lot of different strategies being tried and there's not a very clear objective to what it is we're trying to do. Like I can walk into a Home Depot and there'd be a sign on the window that says, wear a mask, stop the spread of coronavirus. Well, you know, there's tens of millions of Americans that have had coronavirus, potentially 100 million or more Americans that have yep. had it. We're not stopping the spread. <laughs> We're not, this is not stopping, right? doesn't matter how many masks you wear. doesn't matter how much you isolate people unless you kill every person in this country. You're not stopping the spread. And so I think it's a false objective of like, let's stop the spread. So we've also seen, you know, wear a mask or stay home, slow the spread. Maybe that's the objective, to slow the spread. But then to slow it to what end? It's been nine months. To slow it to what? So everybody gets it after 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months. I just want to interject for one minute. I know you didn't get to your main point, but I think you brought up another really good point that I don't think we made enough. And that is it can't be slow the spread because you look at your charts and other people have done this with California and many other similar states, for example. There's one thing if it's like, you know, they didn't get much. And then when it's seasonality, it's fall. They do get it. But it's like, you know, kind of muted. No, they get it with a vengeance. I mean, so there's no way right. you could say, well, maybe embedded in there is a certain degree of efficacy of, you know, the the closing down the bars or 25 percent capacity and the mass and this and that. No, I mean, when they get it, they got a straight line. You saw it with the Czech Republic. You saw it with all these places that did it right until now. And it was just clear it just didn't go there and then when it came it came with a vengeance right you see it in santa clara county so that's where i I recently left from and i grew up in santa clara county in california and i i packed up and left i left my neighborhood i I took my kids out of california um and right now what's happening in santa clara is it's skyrocketing right to to, as fast as it is any other place Uh, what what was the point of the last nine months what was the point of the last nine months well, now you have cases skyrocketing. Like, <laughs> why, you know, damage so many families and so many small businesses? Now, granted, Santa Clara is a lot of tech employees. So it doesn't affect them that much. And that's why people, people are, seem to be okay with it. But underneath that, there's restaurants, there's businesses, there's kids who can't go to school. Like the damage is there even in Silicon Valley, right? So what was the point? Like, what was the point of lockdowns for the last nine months? Maybe some people make the argument of, well, we need to build up hospital capacity. That was the original argument. We need to build up hospital capacity and we need to prepare for it. But how much hospital capacity we build in Santa Clara? I mean, we, we had more capacity before when we were getting ready for the big surge and went away and we used all this extra, we had extra capacity and, and we didn't ever use it. What was the point of, of locking people down when we just got this skyrocketing cases that is as high as it is anywhere in the country? What's the point? And it goes back to the question of what's the objective? If the objective is to slow the spread, then that's you, the policies put in place are not going to work because as long as people can live and interact in any capacity, seasonality measures taken into account, it's going to skyrocket at some point. And so it's difficult to talk about what is the strategy, the strategy of social distancing, the strategy of lockdowns, the strategy of of mask, or I guess these are all different tactics, but there isn't being a strategy because there's no clear objective. Arguably, the only clear objective should be to minimize loss of life and to preserve as much liberty as possible yep. while minimizing loss of life. And if that's the case, 
none of the strategies we've taken none of get that. us there. What what I find shocking is that there's pharmaceutical interventions and there's non-pharmaceutical, and we're we're talking about the non-pharmaceutical. And it shocks me that a hundred percent of the media, politics, public health, even medical people, is all about the superstitious voodoo of the rain dance and the moon dance and you do this and you put up the Chinese cloth and you do that when we know it doesn't help while at the same time the pharmaceutical stuff meaning what really is medical uh, God has not shown us an avenue to stopping the spread of a respiratory virus yet but we do see that when we invest in in cures and and drugs and and therapies you know there always tends to be a upward trajectory in in the outcomes and that's something we're all very thankful to towards but i'm not seeing any any readily available information and even if you get the information sometimes you can't get the stuff of what's a good prophylactics what do you do when the signs are like this it's shut up mask up and don't get it well 100 million people could have gotten it already. I mean, you're going to have to assume you're going to get it. Tell me, give me a better regimen of fortifying my immune system, things that are real science. And I have friends and relatives that are getting it, and they're asking me questions. And it's so sad that eight months into the most studied virus ever and billions of dollars pumped into it, a lot of people don't really have the answers. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a failure of experts across the board, the expert class, unfortunately, right? I mean, they've lost so much credibility this year uh, with their hypocrisy, right? Uh, you know, you have, you have mayors of cities who are, like this happened to the Austin mayor over Thanksgiving. He was put a message on Instagram telling people to stay home, and he did it from his vacation house in Cabo San Lucas, right? You have medical experts who are saying that protests for uh, racial injustice are okay medically, but protests against lockdowns are dangerous, right? We have these experts that have just completely failed us and I think have lost a lot of credibility, which is really one of the another collateral damage of, of this. You're talking about efficacy. If masks, for example, have efficacy, then why don't we have Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer or other people marketing saying our masks are 10 times more effective at stopping coronavirus? Our masks are five times more effective at stopping coronavirus. Why aren't different companies competing? Exactly. Well, why isn't even the FDA or the CDC putting out guidelines saying these kinds of masks are more, more effective? The I, reality yes. is if you look at any mask, it's going to say this doesn't work against respiratory it virus. It doesn't work. It, it says it on the box. Wow, that's a terrific point you just made. Like like if you're so into – it's funny. They're, so, they're obsessed with masks like a religion, but only to a degree. Like if you really – if it's really about a genuine feeling of stopping the virus in your mind and not about a, a tool of social control and a constant reminder that you are a subject to the state and to sow panic and fear, then you would tell people, look, I mean, even if you believe masks work, it sure as hell ain't the cheap pla the cloth masks that anyone, especially those that are indoors for a long period of time and they want to be comfortable, are going to be wearing. It's going to be the more substantial ones with the clamps that don't have the gaps, you know, in between your face. I mean, to the extent that there's anything there and yet there's no desire to even do that. It's just, as long as you have your, your bumper sticker on you, you're okay. And that again, just indicates it's more about social control. Um, I also do feel too, that if they would push clamp down uh, N95s, th then, then they get in trouble. You'd have problems. See, you know, they're saying, well, Daniel, where's your hypoxia? Where's all your issues? Well, yeah. I mean, it's an inverse relationship because by definition, if you're a teacher in school for seven hours, someone in a business shift for seven, eight, nine hours, overwhelmingly, those people are wearing the comfortable cloth mask, which is garbage in, garbage out. It might not give you breathing problems, but that's why it doesn't work. I mean, if it truly cuts you off, and might work well. Then you're going to have issues, right? Right. So we we have so we have problems with a, a, a lack of clear objective, a lack of strategy, and tactics that don't work. Right. And what we do have is restricting freedom of movement, of worship, of a basic livelihood, and we're using fear and fines and intimidation to prevent families from seeing each other. We're you know the governments are asking neighbors to report on one another. Uh, in California, one of the reasons we left is you know, playgrounds were closed for seven months. P kids couldn't play in a playground for seven months outdoors, right? That's not that's not science. I mean, I, I call those human rights violations. I know it sounds it sounds a little bit extreme to be saying those things, 
But if in any other context, in any other country, yep. if that's what we saw a country doing, we would label that as a human right violation. Of course. And you have the ADA and OSHA guidance that goes out the window. We're always obsessed with that. And you have lawsuits up the wazoo if you don't accommodate someone. And now it's just shut up, don't ask questions. I don't care about your disability. Um, I mean, this is all really, really draconian, really crazy. Um, Do I have the broad picture right? If you look at what happened, it seems to me it started in the Northeast. And everyone seems to get a big first wave because that's, you know, when zero percent of the people have it, so it's uh, you have no resistance against it. It spreads very quickly, and then you know it didn't really go much else. And then the summer it migrated to the south, so they got the wave. The northeast already had there, so kind of quiet. It was more regional, and then it seems to me that the mountain area, mountain states, Great Plains, some of the upper Midwest that really didn't have much of either the southern wave or the northeast wave, they their lack of any immunity, which was a good thing because they didn't have, but it hit them right when you had the universal seasonal spread of fall where everywhere it would spread and they got it more just because, you know, they didn't have much. And then kind of California was the farthest area, didn't seem to have much, and it's spreading there now. Is that an oversimplification? Are you seeing more in the trends of of what's happening? And and where do wh- wh- when do you think this slows down? Yeah, well, what all that allows to do is it allows the media and putting out panic porn to be able to have every single day, oh, this place has the highest cases ever. This place <laughs> has the highest cases ever. And they just rotate, <laughs> right? So one day it's one day it's Minnesota and one day it's Connecticut and one day it's California and they just blast this and they never come back to revisit two weeks later, right? <laughs> what's actually happening there. Um, and so yes, every every day is gonna have the highest level in the country at that day. Uh, and many places right now have the highest level ever. Um, where does this end? So, you know, I think, unfortunately, uh, masks are basically a secular religion at this point. People believe their efficacy this, um, this, without any evidence. It's a matter of faith, um, even in the face of any information that, uh, that contradicts their beliefs. It's just like it's a, non, it's a non-starter, right? It's just it's given as an absolute. Right. No matter what you see, it's explained by by masks. So I don't unfortunately, I don't see that going away for the, a lot of the country. Um, I think that we are going to hit herd immunity at one point or another uh, if we're not close to it now. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about herd immunity. Herd immunity is not a strategy, nor is it an objective. Herd immunity is an inevitable outcome. Yep. Society will get to herd immunity. It's only a question of what strategy do we take to get there and who uh, constitutes the base of that herd immunity. So we can get there artificially through a vaccine, and that would certainly be nice if we can uh, you know, get there through a vaccine. We can get there by having a cross-section of people be infected, like which is what we're doing now. Or we could get there by having young people be infected who have a 99.999% chance of survival um, and spare the elderly, right? I mean, if we actually were serious about reducing uh, and saving lives, we would have a strategy that exposes low-risk people or allows for the exposure of low-risk people so that we can save the high-risk population. But there's no discussion like that, right? It's just about closing businesses and restaurants and wearing masks. That's not going to get us there. So what is, I mean, what is the end state? I think there's, there's, there's two questions. There's the uh, intermediate term, what's the next 12 months, 24 months? And then it's a long-term, what's going to happen to our society as a consequence of what we've just gone through what we're going to go through. So in the next 12, 24 months, I mean, pretty soon, <laughs> over half of America is going to have been exposed or be quote unquote a case. Um, and it's important to understand that does not mean that that person was sick, yeah. nor was it mean that they were contagious. Nor did, that, people ask me all the time, like, you know, if they've had the virus, I say, quote, what, having the virus is not a clear definition. If you were infected by it, like we take in bacteria and viruses, we take in thousands of bacteria, we're exposed to thousands of bacteria, right? You've seen all the studies about your iPhone has, you know, with billions of bacteria on it, right? We, we, we are, our body is exposed to viruses and bacteria continuously, right? Uh, and our body defeats them continuously. Now with uh, a high threshold uh, PCR test that we're doing a test, even if you are just exposed to the virus and your body kills it, you're still gonna have fragments of the body in your virus yes. and you're gonna test positive. So 
yeah, but you 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 won't even develop antibodies for it because your body never needed to develop antibodies, and that's where I believe is a significant amount of these cases. That's why we have such high cases right now, but such a much lower death rate. It's not because the virus mutated. It's not because we have, um, although we do, but it's not because we have all these incredibly better treatments. It's because people are, are are testing positive for cases, but they're not actually contagious. They don't really have the virus in their body. So the number of Americans who can actually be infected by this or be tested positive is going to run out in the not too distant future. We're, we can't have more than 330 million people who, uh, who have a positive case on this. Um, and so I think over the next six months, uh, and I certainly hope, you know, I think these quote unquote cases will be going down dramatically. Now, I think incoming administration, they're going to have a mask mandate. We already have a mask mandate. And they're going to say it's because of masks. Um, uh, you know, for political purposes, they're going to claim these things. It's, it's and it'll be perfect timing, because right? Because the hundred days will fall out in the spring when, as we saw last year, you know, it might not go away, but it yeah. will dramatically go down in most places. Many places will probably have nothing at that point. You know, maybe a couple other places that had lower her uh, immunity so far will still have some cases. And they're like, hey, look, it worked. It didn't work the first year, but second year is a charm. And but we've had six months of masks in California, and it's up cases are up like a thousand percent. So we you know what's a hundred days going to do. Uh, there was a really great graph by uh, Ian, another one of uh, people I saw you at a podcast that showed three states, and Utah was uh, very late to the game to put in masks, and they put it in at the same time as they put it in at the very peak, and then it went down. <laughs> but they had the same up and down as, as several other states in the area that put masks in months ago. Um, so anyway, I, I don't want to I don't want to believe the point of the mask, but I think that's what we're going to see is we're going to see cases going down. I certainly hope. And I, I, this is not a virus that I want to be a crystal ball on because we don't understand a lot about this virus. As much as we want to understand about science in the year 2020, there's a lot we don't understand about respiratory viruses whatsoever. Yep. This year has clearly demonstrated that. And I think anybody who thinks they know and understand viruses are in for a rude awakening. So we can only uh, exactly. estimate based on what we know and based on what we've seen. We're going to run out of Americans who are going to be, you know, quote unquote, eligible cases for this. Um, and combined with hopefully maybe uh, a, a successful vaccine introduction that by the spring and summer um, cases will be significantly down. Um, now, longer term, I mean, they will come back right in herd immunity doesn't mean this virus is eradicated. We're not eradicating this virus. It's not disappearing off the earth, but it may be more like a seasonal uh, flu, and, and that's right? what con- that's what concerns me. I opened up the show with that because H1N1 is still around. I mean, it was introduced in the Spanish flu. It, it had certain peaks like like in uh, 2010, but it's still around today. And and if that's going to be, you know, it's funny. I, I did a show back in uh, March titled "This Is Our Afghanistan," <laughs> and you'd appreciate it uh, with your vast military experience. Mm-hmm. And I felt it was very similar to it because you you mentioned a comment: unless you kill every human being, you can't stop it. Because again, this is not like a hurricane that goes over a geographical place; it's a parasite. It it goes into the person, so you can't really play peekaboo and hide indefinitely from it. It will have to go through a population. So it reminded me of Afghanistan, where where it was like, well, what's the objective? Well, I. I see a Taliban. I see a bad guy. Well, I know there's a lot of bad guys there, but I mean, unless you're going to kill the entire population, what exactly are you going to do there? Well, what is it you want to do? And that's why, you know, from the Soviets onto America, nobody ever seemed to uh, be able to find an objective outside of the initial invasion where, you know, it always looks successful. Okay. Cause you know, you could dislodge a power. Well, now what do you do now? You know, how do you hold the people together? Um, and it, and it's kind of a similar thing where we've gotten into this, but you know, you got your military there. So you feel like there's a bad guy and I have a soldier, you know what I mean? So there's a virus, there's a case and I have a mask. I have some lockdown tools and you just cannot relinquish that. I mean, that really is my concern. Um, we're almost out of time, but I, I really have to get to your other stuff on hospitalization data. So a lot of people are very confused. You know, obviously, I think a lot of people were understanding the case-demic, especially in the summer, bunch of cases, and nobody was in the hospital. Hospitals were empty in the summer. They were really empty mm-hmm. in the spring outside the Northeast, and then other places got it. But then there was a period of time really nobody was in the hospital. 
now there's, you know, what people are seeing is like hospitals are busting at the seams. That's what they're hearing. And, you know, that that seems like a legitimate concern. Could you give us some context to these numbers, um, both quantifying, but also the quality of what type of people are in the hospital? Yeah. And unfortunately, hospital data has been some of the most misleading and manipulated data, uh, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes just blatant lies. Uh, the mayor of Houston back in August or July timeframe uh, made a comment about how hospitals were, were bursting the seams. They'd be out of capacity in two weeks. I mean, how many times have you heard hospitals are going to be out of capacity in two weeks at different places? And fortunately, Houston's area actually publishes very good data has a very good dashboard on total hospitalizations, right? Most places will publish how many COVID cases they have in hospitals, which is good to know, but it's not nearly as important as total hospitalizations. And when I downloaded Houston's data, actually charted, crafted, it showed that it was flat. There was absolutely no trajectory. And, you know, I, 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 this, happens, this happens so many times this year where I read something in the media, I go to the source data, I look at it, and I'm just shocked that the data is completely contradictory to whatever the headline story just ran. Uh, and that, so that was just a blatant lie that hospital capacity was going to be out in two weeks. Now, I think I know why people like that make those cases. It's because COVID hospitalizations go up, right? They went up from like 5% of our hospitals to COVID patients to now 20% of our hospitals to COVID patients. So, oh, this is terrible. We're going to run out of space. The issue is that Anybody who checks into the hospital and is checked for COVID, which I assume is everybody now, if they test positive for COVID, whether they're there for a broken foot or an appendicitis or something completely or a heart condition, they're now counted as a COVID patient. And so as there's more positive PCR cases in any region, the number of people who are hospitalized, quote unquote, as COVID goes up, but it has nothing to do with how many more people actually are in the hospital for COVID? They're there for, in the hospital with COVID. And so you have to look at the total hospitalization number, the, the, what's called the hospitalization census. It tells you how many beds are occupied, both in the general hospital community, as well as in the ICU, to understand what's the risk. Now, recently, California, uh, you know, scientifically following California, just abandoned their entire framework that they've established for months in terms of what areas are safe and what areas are not, which were based on previously on positivity rates and cases um, and you know those numbers. And there were plenty of problems with the way they were doing it, but they just threw it out of the window and they said, now, no, if, it's, if you have 85% or more occupancy in, in ICUs, your county is gonna be locked down harshly, right? And this is an imp almost impossible criteria to meet, which is why basically all of California is now locked down. Now, I, I dug up, like I say, 85%. Is that high or is that low? You know, I dug up numbers for Los Angeles, for example, that shows that their flu case, standard flu case forecast, expects a 90% ICU utilization occupancy baseline, a 90% baseline for a non-flu season. And in flu seasons, it gets up to 95 to 98%. And we're already getting to mid-December. This is already mid-December. Absolutely. So that means hospitals are used to operating at 90% or more, right? It's like a hotel or any business. Hospitals are businesses, man, that day. You're not going to have all this extra capacity for no reason at all. Now, you don't want to be running at 100% because you have no flexibility. But 85% is below the flu season baseline, right? So basically, California is is triggering lockdowns when California, when their hospitals are below non-COVID season occupancy rates, right? It, it, that, that, is, that, is, that is madness, right? That is, that is people's livelihood. This isn't something to take lightly. Uh, these are businesses that, that go out. These are kids that can't go to school. These are families that can't get together. And so there was a question yesterday to the San Diego uh, health officer asking her, what, is the, what, was the, what was the occupancy last year? What's the typical occupancy? when she was giving her report and she didn't know, <laughs> right? These, you have these health officers who are saying 85% is a trigger for, oh, things are going crazy or things are going sideways, but they don't even know what the, what the baseline numbers are. So th this hospitals, so hospitalizations, you've got to look at the main number to look at is total census. And right now 
because I just did some deep dive into Los Angeles County. Uh, I looked at the Los Angeles County uh, reports where the only report I could find anywhere in California that actually gave us uh, templated baseline numbers. This is from Los Angeles County uh, Department of Health Services Hospitals, which are the four biggest hospitals in the area. Currently, they are at exactly 2019 December averages for total. Wait, 2019 December averages. Now, this is very important because December 2019 was actually a mild flu season. And you're telling me right now it's at it. And what's very important also about what you're telling me with total capacity not to look at the sleight of hand with COVID numbers is because there's this other very, I mean, unbelievable phenomenon that the media has buried until recently. And then now when they have to report it, they they lie about the reason behind it. But, you know, you take just last week, week 47 of CDC flu surveillance and flu cases were down 98.4 percent over the five year average. And it's not because we're not testing. We're testing like crazy for the flu in addition to COVID. So what's important to keep in mind, isn't this true, that as we're headed into flu season, we're in flu season, and the next six, eight weeks are going to be the peak of flu season. So even if you have an area that gets their first big wave of COVID, they're hit pretty hard, but you have to compare that to a typical year where you would have the flu, and now you have no flu, but you have COVID. Well, is it worse? Is it a little bit worse? Is it about the same? Is it a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, hospital systems are obfuscating, whether it's intentional or just because of incompetency. They're obfuscating any sort of data that will allow you to evaluate it objectively, right? What they need to show is, here's the average occupancy for the last five years. Here's our search capacity, and here's where we are now. That's what matters. Looking at total COVID uh, patients, again, it's not any relevant stat, but it's without context, and you certainly can't set policy off it. Wow. I mean, we are we are way over time here, but this is very enlightening and my audience is going to demand that you come back. And I, I really want you back. But before I let you go, one last thing. We went to cases, we went to hospitalizations. I want to take to the final level, just real briefly. What is your overarching take based on your charts, your observations from eight months of data analysis of this, looking at the death burden, you know, the, you know, and that's really what everyone's scared about and rightfully so. Um, does it seem that more or less, I mean, you could have, you know, regular people get pretty sick, but they recover. Most people get it pretty mildly, but some randomly do get pretty sick. But in terms of the actual fatalities, it seems to me that of course there's exceptions, but for the most part, it's tracking almost exactly with life expectancy, meaning women will be where their general life expectancy, men are where theirs is, which is a few years younger. If it's in the Scandinavian countries, they're a few years higher than us. But it almost always tracks with life expectancy that aren't we seeing that those who die, let's say you're 68, 72-year-old who dies, is the, isn't the data pretty much showing on average it's not the 68-year-old who and I'm not speaking philosophically, but just statistically speaking, was slated to live to 90 and was cut down at 68 for COVID. It's generally those who are near the end of their life, wherever that was for them. Yeah, it, well, it's a very astute point that life expectancy is very, it's very strongly correlates to the average death in COVID. So the last time I checked, it was 78 in the United States. I mean, the life expectancy in the United States is 78. And the average person who dies from COVID is 78. I think in Canada, it's a couple of years higher. It's like 80 or 81 life expectancy. And that's approximately the average age of death. And it's even higher in some other places. And so life, you know, it is amazingly amazing that it could be that we can go through all of this pandemic and life expectancy doesn't change in the United States. Where it does change is if you compare uh, excess death by age. So if you compare excess death by age, for example, in the United States and Sweden, now Sweden has had some new measures lately, which is a whole different topic. Maybe we'll get to another time. Um, but in general, for the most of 2020, Sweden has had very re- uh, relaxed um, requirements. And even now, most things are suggestions and not requirements. And what you see is that in ages 75 and above, the United States and Sweden's excess death, of course, by percentage, track very closely. So both Sweden and the United States have, have suffered similar excess deaths in the 75 and above age group. 
But if you look at 15 to 64, Sweden is below. They have a negative excess death, right? Uh, maybe people are being safer. They're traveling less, right? There are less car accidents. Sweden, 15 and 64, 16, 15 and 64 have less deaths this year than previous five years average. Not so in the United States. United States is 10 to 20 percent above average. Now, you can make arguments that this is because Swedish people are healthier or uh, whatever, and, and, or they have uh, different access to different medical systems. And I think there's certainly some grains of that that need to be looked at. Right. But the biggest overriding difference is our policy and what we have done. And I think what we will find is that there's a lot of people who have died, um, either as a first order effect or as a second order effect, not from the virus directly, but of our policies. Yep. Because they couldn't get access to health care because their hospitals were closed or not, or they were afraid to go to the hospital um, or suicide or drug overdoses, et cetera. And so it's really interesting talking about excess deaths is to stratify it based on age groups. And where really the United States has performed uh, very poorly is uh, excess deaths, not necessarily from COVID, but COVID uh, secondary effects for people who are under 64, 65. People who, uh, one more point, one final point on risk. Okay, and I think this is one of the reasons that I, I, I I think I benefit from some clarity of thought on COVID. Not that I am all knowing on this. Uh, you know, this is a very, very complicated subject. Uh, but in the military, I was very used to doing risk analysis. You know, I, this isn't the first time in my life where I had to contemplate uh, risk of death. And there were times when risk of death was very, very high uh, in, in what I was doing on my missions. So this is not the first time that I have to contemplate this. So I'm very comfortable looking at risk of death, and I'm very comfortable looking at the data and saying, well, look, 99.99% chance of survival, I will, I'm, I'm okay taking my chances with that. It's actually three times more likely that I'm actually three times more likely to die by choking on food in my life than I am if, I'm, if I get COVID. So I'm, I can, I'm comfortable with that. Um, the, the risk of death generally correlates with your chance of dying in any given year anyway. So this, this is an important point to understand. If you're 80 years old, your actuary tables tell you that you have a one in eight, one in nine chance of dying in any given year because your life expectancy when you're 80 is eight or nine more years. So you have a one in eight chance of dying that year already. Exactly. If you're 30 years old and healthy, you have a one in, I don't know, 20,000, 50,000 chance, 100,000 chance of dying that year. Well, it turns out that COVID risk is, is, pr is pretty closely tracks with that. Right. So if you were not paranoid and afraid of dying in 2019, uh, COVID should not make that big of a difference for you from an actual uh, physical point of view. And like psychological, that's different. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and like you're saying, I think we see this in the in the data with seniors. The people point to 70 year olds who will die. But, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of 70 year olds who die. Um, not everyone. We expect people nowadays to live in their 80s and 90s and a lot do. But, you know, 78 is the average, so it means a lot of people live till 90, 95, 100. But unfortunately, a lot of people still do die in their 60s and 70 um, from all different things. And it seems to just track with the virus almost almost vets out those people who are in the final months, wherever that is. I mean, you could be 68 in your final months. You could be 95 in your final months. You could be 82 and nowhere near your final months. And likely most of those latter people tend to not die from the virus even at that age that's really and and i look i guess it's probably going to take us many years to sift this out um you know whether there is uh a, a big death burden but I, but i think what what we're trying to say is it's not like oh they're old who cares like they're old no it's a matter of it's pretty much tracking with whenever it was their time to die and like you said even if there is a burden, which we all care about, what have you done that has shown efficacy in stopping that? Your Sweden to U.S. comparison shows that it's all pain and no gain. Basically, we have nothing to show for our measures in terms of protecting seniors, but destroying the lives of younger people. Many more years of life lost, the, the drug and 
the drug numbers people are putting out. Cook County, Illinois today is just insane. The increase is 80%. Um, that's got to factor in loss of life. Any any parting right. thoughts before I let you go? Yeah, I mean, I want to clarify. I'm not pro or anti-mask, for example. A mask is just a piece of cloth, right? I'm pro policies that make a difference, right? I am not indifferent to loss of life. Um, I'm for a policy that minimizes loss of life while maximizing personal freedoms and, and livelihoods. I'm for those policies. Unfortunately, the lockdowns and the policies we've had have been contradictory to those goals. Wow, that is very sobering. Look, that is Yunan Weiss at Y I N O N W on Twitter. You need to start writing more so people could follow your your stuff. Um, it's just terrific. The charts, the data, the very broad picture that you're really not going to see anywhere else. Um, we're going to have you back again, but for now, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Yunan. Folks, same time, same place tomorrow. God bless you all, and stay safe.